Hi, and welcome to Conversation with a Chef. I'm Jo Ritty, and I love sharing with you the conversations I get to have with talented and passionate chefs. It's the backstory, if you will, to the food they're putting up. Today's chat is with Paul Wilson, who's currently helping establish Morgan's, a fish bar in Sorrento. I drove to the peninsula on a hot summer's day and sat out on the terrace at Morgan's, rosé in hand and with a beautiful view of the beach and bobbing boats in the bay. I ate grilled snapper with a snow pea tendril salad and it was delicious. I've been wanting to talk to Paul Wilson for a while now. Other chefs I've spoken to refer to him in glowing terms and he enjoys an immense reputation on Melbourne's culinary landscape. After lunch, when I strolled over to meet him, Paul was flicking with relish through Josh Nyland's The Whole Fish Cookbook. A Christmas gift, he said. Our chat started in at that point, and I loved every minute of it. Oh, beautiful. This chef, this chap, he's from St. Peter's in Sydney. Okay, right. does a lot of um, unconventional fish cookery. He sort of dries his fish like meat. Yeah, okay, you, that's you, really interesting, yeah. And he uses the, every part of the fish for a dish. Okay, yes. Know, not just the sort of premium cuts. I think that's sort of the way that things are going, isn't it, with people looking for different ways of doing things. I just yeah. went um, and spent a day down at um, Corner Inlet with um, Sasha Rust, who is working for the Marine Conservation Society with the Good Fish Project, and he sort of gathered some chefs and some fishermen together and sent them out on the boats together and then had them talking about... Um, sustainable fishing and how important it is to. I saw that on Instagram. Yeah. It was, um, what's his name? Uh, ben Shuri. And, and the, the chap with blonde hair. Ooh. I forget his name all the time. Nick uh, Stanton? Yes. Yeah, yeah. They were all, they were all there. <laughs> it's good to see young chefs, you know, showing interest in these things. They're, yeah. they're never used to. No, well, it's interesting, it's interesting you say that because I spoke to a very young chef who's not a head chef, but he was a chef de party in the Yarra Valley. And he was, um, he's 23, and he, he sort of did his training in Melbourne, and then he went to London, and he was sort of lamenting the Australian lack of um, commitment to chefing that he saw in London. He was saying, it's all got to go down the tubes because you can't do stage as easily here anymore, and thank you. Um, and it was sort of an interesting point of view I hadn't really come across before. <laughs> Yeah, Europe's changed too. I mean, yeah. I think just recently the whole industry's sort of um, scratched its head, not not sure what not sure what to do with this new not new, but this this um, I suppose obligation to do the right thing and pay yeah. people by the award. And, That's right. And, um, so they're they're being very almost overprotective. Yeah, and it's a hard one because I think on one hand, yes, there is fairness and there's and people should be paid what you know what they do. But but a number of chefs I've spoken to also have the point of view that um, when you're honing your craft, you do have to put the hours in. So it's a it's a tricky one, and I don't know whether it comes more from front of house or or the kitchen in that terms of fair work. But it is it's a it's, a, it's been a bit of a beast, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's the last corporate entities that have made so much money. In the, yeah, the figureheads are. Almost flaunting their wealth on social media, and then their staff see it and they just go, "What's going on here?" Yeah, and I think that's the thing, isn't it? Yeah, yes. So it's, it's a secret there, isn't there? You know, like restaurateurs for years have learned to be very um, private with their with their sort of income. Yes. And um, but chefs 
know, <laughs> the shelves, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're artists, aren't you? Although I said that to Kitty, um, to Kitty, not Kitty, but to Annie Smithers, who on Instagram is Kitty Smithers. But um, and she said, no, it's not an art; it's just a trade. You know, I'm just cooking dinner. But people like you and Annie Smithers are not just cooking dinner. You, you've put in many years to be cooking fabulous dinners. Yeah, we've, we've done an awful lot. Yeah. I've done, I've done some very artistic work in artistic restaurants, yeah. fine dining restaurants, and, and I'm, you know, doing some very positive, simple things too, you know, just the career has many, many sort of, um, can I put it, uh, ebbs and flows. Yeah. And uh, if you love job you don't mind the ebbs and flows so you go with the ebbs and flows go oh that's right and melbourne's changed a lot uh, the last 10 years not so much top end sort of work mm. interesting top end so top chefs like me i find myself trying to improve the middle ground because i feel like there's not much opportunity to improve the top because no one really wants to be in that in that field you know in that, in that's that right space, so. yeah that's um interesting angle and I, I guess the rise of cafes and, and, um, and cafe culture with um, consumers expecting a certain level of food but under a certain price that's become a challenge I think as well and and maybe maybe chefs too are looking for a more sustainable lifestyle for themselves you know not doing I can, I can, no, I can, that's where my head is at the moment like we've had a ma- massive five six years with you know a lot of, a lot of consultancy work and uh, also starting my own business and, and, and selling that and the sort of pressure of ebbs and flows of a partnership split with, and, and going through the legal sort of process of that is very demanding on your body and your, and your, and your mind. Yes, and I guess too, and I don't want to say the wrong thing here, but I guess um, maybe some of those things came around the same time as people like Anthony Bourdain and, um, and Jeremy... Um, Jeremy Stroud, yeah. yeah. But no, absolutely, it, it was, uh, for me, when, they, when Jer- I mean, I, I left England because three good friends of mine passed away. They were very close to me yeah. in succession. And that was through um, driving while after work, the first thing to the wheel. And um, separate, separate incidents. It was quite bizarre how it happened. And um, so I, I was sort of depressed and, and unhappy with the sort of lifestyle of being a top chef in London. I thought, have a sea change of working in Melbourne mm. and um, never worked so hard in my life. Actually, it's harder. <laughs> wow, because I was going to ask you about that because I've had a chat to Paul Rayner before and he mentioned you as a mentor and friend and, and you both kind of came out in the 90s on that wave of yes. British chefs the that, Brit pack, yeah. that, that came and shook up the industry here. Yeah. How, so just talk me through that because I, I've read that a lot and what does that mean to come and shake up the industry? How did do you arrive and go, right, <laughs> let me clean things up or what? Well, we don't know you're shaking up the industry, if I'm honest, because you're so just self-obsessed about doing what you've always done and, and having high standards and making other people around you um, sort of better at what they do. Yeah. So that's the English way or the European way of training. It's, it's, it's a, your, your responsibility is to be a trainer and uh, a mentor and a leader. And if you don't have those sort of skills, you don't survive in the European kitchen. Mm. Um, so moving to Melbourne, I suppose my only ambition was to sort of, was to survive and make, make sure the, the, the move was a, a viable success and um, it was worthwhile leaving my family behind, my parents in particular. And um, so you, you're driven to be really, I suppose, 
Um, there's no room for error, you know, and to be the best you can be. Mm. Um, unfortunately for us, the media loved it, loved our style of food. Um, mm. It was quite different to what Australia produced before. It was more technical, and a lot of language and, and, and food phrases they hadn't heard before. So menus become very exotic and very interesting. So the whole thing was like a new, like a new fashion or a new wave of music we've never heard before. It got quite edgy and gritty and stylish. And, yeah. Um, and, and England at the time was, as a whole, was was like you know really cool. Cool Britannia was as a, as a nation with fashion and music and food just sort of caught up. Mm. You know, it's a terrible food in the UK. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think it's just the, the British Isles get this act together, and yeah. some some of us moved over to Melbourne and you know kept working hard and. Demanded more from from their fellow Australians and suppliers and customers and yeah. designers and the whole game got lifted. That's right. Yeah. And a great um, great times. We were very close. All of us were very close. So there's a lot of camaraderie, which wasn't very apparent in the UK. It's quite competitive. Oh, okay. So yeah. that was really nice. We used to meet each other and, and watch football and do those sort of things, which you probably wouldn't do in the UK. Mm. So that was the difference between working in Australia. Was it was more. It's more social, less competitive. Um, and when those guys, those chefs passed away, um, who are good friends of mine, um, sort of they realised, well, what am I doing? You know, what am I doing? What am I sort of not far behind? You know, hit by a car, have a heart attack, or you know, side is all too hard, jump off the pier, and what's um, my legacy? Mm. All worked hard. <laughs> so I've decided to sort of um, be a bit more open-minded about my work choices and with a view that I can have a, a good work-life balance is critical because mm. I, I want to be in the game long term I mean, I've been in the game long term you know, yeah. 30 years yeah I'm, I feel really feel really good and I feel like I've still got a lot to offer mm. it's all very creative yeah and I, and I still like working with young, young people and teaching and training I think it's a responsibility to give back yeah and that's my journey now is to give back um, so to do that, I need to keep myself fit and well, and well-being in the mind, more so in the body. I think with a positive outlook, you can do anything. Mm. And um, so I've chosen roles like this, which sort of they're not long-term; they're sort of six-month gigs. Yeah, to get them up and running, is it? Yeah, just re, re, rejuvenate. Yeah. Re, refresh, retrain. It's like a hands-on consultancy, because I, I saw you in the kitchen, because I, I had lunch out there, the fish and um, the, what do I have? The gold band marlin, which okay. I've never heard of before. <laughs> gold band snapper, I mixed yes. it up, snapper. It's like, yeah, it's like the Queensland version of, of, of our Fort Phillips snapper. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Nice um, fish. Yeah, it was delicious. Yeah, but I saw you out in the kitchen, so so that's you like to get alongside when you're. I think you, have, you, you can't train someone, you know, just by writing a book or, you know, remotely. I've done a lot of remote work, consultancy work, menus and recipes, but you really have to be hands on. Chefs are, I mean, I say respectfully because I'm a chef still. Most chefs come into the industry, they're, 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 they're very, um, not low intellect, but they're, they're, they're not, not really super intelligent. So they need a lot of training, need a lot of physical hands-on leadership. Mm. Um, some most of our chefs, some of our chefs don't speak English. Mm. Um, it's, it's an industry which has, like Australia, many wonderful influences from all over the world. Mm. So you know you have, can't articulate that 
in everyone's language, but a pair of hands and a, and a, and a, and a smile. Can you do that. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I like the hands-on side of it. I do get frustrated still. Yeah. But, you know. What's the frustration from? From people not understanding your vision, or from? Um... No, you just want to do better. You want to do it better. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I want to have. A, want it to be really effortless and smooth. Want everyone to be happy. Yeah. Customers, past people. You know, veterans, everyone, all yeah. they want to be really happy. We'll, 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 we'll perfect it soon. That's right. It's week two, so. Yeah, it's week two, goodness, yeah. okay, yeah. <laughs> I think it, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I remember when I was um, finishing off at university and I was waitressing in New Zealand, and um, there was a real, it was in the 90s, and it was, end of the 90s, and it was, um, there's a distance between kitchen and front of house, and I think that's changed now, I hope, <laughs> because I've just been being so, so uh, scared of the chefs, but I feel now it's more about teamwork and, you know, and the front of house has to be able to understand what the chefs are saying so they can convey it to the diners, and I think it's a different, it is a different world. But it is, it's much more inclusive. Um, we also have briefings with the front of house to ensure that we're all on the same page. Yeah. Um, Again, front of house generally is a low-skilled sort of work at the start. So you do attract students and people who can't speak English. So you know you need to have that integration at every level. Otherwise, you are just screaming. Yeah. It's like four towers because no one else still can't speak English. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah. So I read somewhere that you um, became, you started working in a kitchen when you were 16. What what was it? 14. That, 14. Astounds yeah. me because I'm a teacher as well as a writer and I teach um, girls in a private school and I look at them sometimes. I hear all these stories of chefs who, who get out into the workforce at a really early age. I'm just like, how would these girls these days survive? Anyway, what, what drew you in initially? I was very fortunate. Our, our neighbour, who was a beautiful man, a Spanish family who lived in our next door neighbours who parents were very close with and swapped recipes and and um, my parents were sort of worried about me but I was very good at sports and had no academic sort of skill to be in a, in a career of you know anything of notes so they pushed me into hospitality and I worked at the Stafford Hotel in St James's in Mayfair from the age of 14 just just the weekends just uh, um, making uh, patisserie the pastry chef was from Harrods, so he was this extraordinary creative man. He made these wonderful wedding cakes and centerpieces and sugar work, and it was just like a lavender's cake, you know. And uh, I, I was in a spell. I just, just just knew. I just my whole demeanour changed. My whole personality changed just from working within a five-star hotel's kitchen. Just the theatre of it all, just the uniforms, the smells, the, the atmosphere. If it was like, like I've been reborn. Wow. It's just my calling. Yeah. And I was, for some reason, I was really good at it, really quick. I could show me one, so I'd pick something up. Um, and then everyone said, God, you, you sure you haven't done that before? And I said, well, I haven't done that before. Let's keep it up, you know, you're doing well. And I didn't do anything well, but, you know, but I realised that I had a knack of learning um, about um, patisserie in particular. I had a good touch and um, I could pick things up quickly. And then I moved into the hot kitchen and it was the same with fish prep and meat prep. And I, just, I think I loved nature as a kid. Where we lived was very 
very pretty it's got fishing a lot okay and it's in the middle of the country and I think when you immerse with beautiful produce and the theatre of a hotel and you just it's like a, it's like it's part of your progression from that nature like upbringing and appreciating life and the outdoors and the guns and the sophisticated world I think you have respect for everything yeah and um I was very lucky. My, my chef, Amanda, was like my godfather in here because once I started working as a chef, I didn't see my family, didn't see my parents. Um, he would take me to all the top hotels in the area and all the top chefs and do a stash in each one. It's part of the culture in London. If you work to the Ritz, and you're referred to the Dorchester, then you're referred to the Savoy, and then you're referred to Inn on the Park, or you know, the Langham House, or the Ritz Center. And that's what was my career. I got referred everywhere. And I was, and everyone loved me for some reason. I just, I was a big lad, and, and um, I did what I was told. And um, Amanda was very popular in the industry. A lovely Spanish man, very charismatic. And um, so I think being English, um, being sort of a big fella and positive and happy, and I was sort of, I don't know, they latched onto me. Yeah. Put a lot of time into me, yeah. and I uh, learned quick, and I climbed that really fast. I was a top chef of Quaglinos in London, which is one of the busiest, most famous restaurants in the nineties. Mm. I was twenty-seven, and um, I was about forty chefs under my belt. And I, I was spending for the business probably about hundred thousand dollars pounds, which is like a week on, on food. And did that side of thing feel natural as well, that sort of leadership and, and overseeing and being so responsible? A little bit. Uh, I, I had no problem telling people what to do, because yeah. I was confident. Mm. But I, was, I wasn't very comfortable with management, mm. and it got a bit, too, a bit too much in the end. Mm. I had a general manager who was enjoying my weaknesses. Oh. And was trying to, he, he was convinced I was too... too um, junior for the role, but I, I was probably I was the most qualified person for the job because I've been there five years and no one else could run the kitchen better than I could and no one could um, understand the food possibly more than I, but he wanted someone mature and more experienced, uh, more financially aware and um, I felt that pressure. So I, I, when I was offered a job in Melbourne, I thought this is perfect and he wants someone else. So. I left and they employed a, a textbook executive chef and it lasted a year and the whole place collapsed. Yeah, you know, wow. Because you know, he needed that younger, more hands-on sort of finger on the pulse approach rather than the executive and the just looking at spreadsheets, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Paglino's was um, extraordinary business which became one of the worst restaurants straight Yeah, okay. Because I have, so who else would have mentioned that? Paul Rayner would have and maybe... Paul Tyers is probably a bit younger, but he, I think he went over and worked with Paul Rayner. Yeah. A lot of Aussies worked there because yeah. um, John Turow, who's is a master chef in the UK, he was a sous chef there. Okay. And uh, Martin Webb was the executive chef. Mm. So they opened Magdalena's and I joined as a sous. Okay. I employed Paul Rayner. Paul Rayner, I've always employed Paul. Mm. Uh, I was his best man at his wedding. He was an apprentice with me. I've known him forever. Very, very nice fella and very good chef and yeah. hard working. Um, so did you come over and he followed or yeah. was it just, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I brought about eight guys with me. Wow. Um, and we hit the ground running at George's. Poor London. <laughs> See ya. Yeah, everyone, everyone sort of freaks out a little bit yeah. because they, um, 
I think they loved the lifestyle, but they didn't like the hours. Mm. We were working more hours in, in Melbourne than we were in London because London got this resource, you got this turnover, got oh. this population, so you can have two teams and it all works in, in your budget. Where in Melbourne, different sort of commercial uh, setup, so you're having to cover a lot of shifts yourself. Yeah. So a lot of the guys left after a year, went back to London because they just. They like they like the, the challenge of opening the hotel or the restaurant, but it wasn't the hotel. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't me. I, 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 I was lucky. The press loved me and I got good reviews, and it got my ego sort of, you know, polished, if you like, and I, I kept going. And, um, do you see yourself more because because you're always described as you know top Melbourne chef? Is that how you can? Because I still, do you still consider yourself a British chef or are I've you a Melbourne chef? I've lived chef? in Melbourne longer than I have in the UK. Mm. But some food writers refer to me as a British chef. Oh. And it annoys me. Okay. And I feel like I've got a good relationship with some because they've realised my contribution. And mm. I just think I'm this weirdo who claims to be good at Mexican food, good at fish cookery, excuse me, good at meat cookery, good at. I'm a good all rounder. And loves the industry and I travel a lot and I've written four books, two have been Latin and you know, two have been about French a French restaurant in, in Melbourne and one's been about um, a taqueria and and you know the media sort of criticise you for knowing too much. <laughs> yeah, that's Australia though, isn't it? Tall poppy, tall poppy syndrome. <laughs> yeah. But I was thinking it's interesting because I just read it. I just read something somewhere online about how you had um, you were talking a lot about getting into not getting into but um, embracing vegetarian and vegan food and being being a bit more plant based in your focus, um, perhaps in your previous definitely, role. Definitely. And, and I just was talking to the chefs at um, Prince Dining Room, so um, the two um, Dan's Dan Hawkins and Dan Cooper, who's the head chef. And they, now that's a really big focus for them at the Prince Dining Room. I was thinking it's kind of a, maybe a nice legacy as well. Thank you. No, it definitely was. was, was I suppose, if I'm honest, Matt Wilkinson was one of the first chefs to really get on that vegetable path. Yeah. He was inspired by um, the Stone Barns restaurant in New York. Yes, I spoke to him, yeah, Matt Wilkinson. And uh, he, he came back and he, he built this garden at Circo on the, on the deck. And when he left, the Van Handel sold the, the hotel to my, my clients, who became business partners with the non pub group. And they said, We've got this giant garden on, on the roof, what are we going to do with it? And um, I said, Look, it's, it's clearly not working for the business because high maintenance is. Well, there's plenty of amazing farmers around, let's just let's reverse the sort of production and keep the same philosophy, I think. Uh, plant-based food is here to stay, mm. and certainly commercially, it's very good for a restaurant to, to be selling vegetables rather than premium meat and fish. You know, there's much more opportunity there, and it's a nice way of cooking. And um, so they went, they were like, make it work, you know. And so we talked to a few farmers and got that happening, and that was really exciting. Mm. Um, you know, growing your own produce from seed to harvest is. It's a really wonderful thing to do, and um, you learn a lot too. Mm. You, think, you think you know a lot as a chef, but farming is completely different. Yes, that's right. And um, understanding how things grow in this country was, was remarkably enlightening for me. It changed the way I, I wrote my menus and 
how I buy food. And, um, but I think um, this whole, you know, we're getting so many inquiries by our clients for vegan food or plant-based food. It wasn't just because it was trendy, it was, it was people that made that decision how they want to eat. My brother's now vegetarians. I, I was giving my brother's wife a vegan pie recipe last night at two in the morning. <laughs> um, it's the whole world. Yeah, I just watched that um, documentary by the um, Melbourne food um, filmmaker, and I can't remember his name, Damien Gimmo, I think, anyway, 2040, and that's quite a quite an and positive look at what, what what's possible with what we've got now that, that could make 2040 a lot better. And his big thing is, you know, we should never have been feeding grain to cattle. That's a big problem. Yes. And, and we should be eating less meat and more vegetables and then that would cut down on so much you know a lot of the problems in the, the need really for so much would. water and all of those things and I think we've got to start taking notice of these things it's, it's just like you know, how we treat insects too and how they are so important to the growth of plants and bees and how they yes. pollinate our flowers biodynamic plants are so interesting there's a farm not far from there Fingal, uh, Fingal Farm yeah. it's called Transition Farm you should follow them on Instagram if you get a chance yeah. or even have a chat with the farm the name's come up with, yeah. they're very interesting very passionate people like a little bit a little bit you know unbalanced passionate <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, like chefs get unbalanced with their obsession like Robin the farmer she's like virgin on obsessive you know about how she grows her stuff and um, but you taste the stuff, taste it. Yeah. It's just extraordinary difference. And then I guess too, I mean people say who like like Alejandro from Pastuso and you know and people who who go and see the vegetables being grown and take their chefs out and to see that it's about then having more respect for the you know you'd have less wastage when people know what the story is behind it Very and all true. of that kind of stuff. And I think all of that's important. And um and I, and I sort of see through your career you've really. Um, embraced a lot of different things and, I, and even today when I've come and you're reading this cookbook um, I feel like that's part of sustainability as a chef is constantly learning and constantly being willing to be open to what you should need to be open to. It's very true I mean the old saying that we have in, in, the, in our trade is you never never stop learning or you're never too old to stop learning and it's very very true and you, get, you get hear that all the time as a young chef your mentors keep badgering all about that forcing you to be humble and have an open mind and um, I think I've stayed in the game because I, I try and um, well, well we have to because <laughs> commercially if you don't you're different for to pay the bills but <laughs> all that side I try and think of a bit of vision yeah. you know like what's what might happen next yes. you know, and I try and look to what's happening in the world yeah. and see how you know we can learn from London or learn from LA or learn from Mexico or learn from Peru and how I can bring that back to Melbourne. Melbourne's such a wonderful produce bowl. It's got so much potential to jump into so many different food cultures. Until you travel you don't realise the similarities of all these different countries. When you see the produce you go, gosh they grow the same type of onions meat or the same produce. Saying, well, a different type of onion. Can we grow that onion here? And yes, we can. And all of a sudden, you know, we've got this sort of food culture, which is amazing on our doorstep because it, it's meant to be here. Because we're like the Mediterranean, we're like South America, mm. we're like you know, parts of tropical Queensland, it's like, like the Andes, you know. Um, 
So it's just, I suppose it's just, we're very fortunate to live in this country and, and then when you travel, you just go, gosh, how can I celebrate that further? As, as, as a chef, you can really do that. Yeah. You know? yeah. I don't. I don't um, put things on my menu to show off. I put them on the menu to say, "This is grown here. This is, this is amazing. This is this stuff comes from here." Now. Yeah. Well, I was looking on the menu. Um, I think there's a slight problem with fish <laughs> because I think it's a shame that we can't. The whole ocean, this whole sea out there, we're right. And no one fish in the bay anymore. No, only, that's what I mean. There's only it's eight, eight licenses left, and they, yeah. they, they expire in 2020. Yeah, which I guess is that about sustainability or is that about recreational fishing? Um... Well, the government <laughs> decided it is the most sustainable thing to do is stop fishing. Uh, and then the, the fishermen would argue without their fishing, things become unbalanced, yeah. overpopulated. And what's the impact? We don't know yet. But they've increased the recreational fishing licenses. Yeah. So, so does that. <laughs> it's a little bit less accountable. I don't know. Yeah. Does that help pollution? Does that help? I don't know. It's It's tricky. But how have you gone about choosing the fish for here? Because I, I think Renata from Raymond was saying it's um, you know, this New Zealand and Australian fish. Um, it's and a you hot did potato, have a, isn't it? Yeah. And, and, the, and the group you're with, they, they've got a fierce reputation of, of almost scaremongering. Yeah, I did look up some of your fish which didn't reappear yeah. on the other and, but yeah. And they, they're, they're very like, how do I put it, um, you shouldn't eat that, you shouldn't eat this, you must eat this, you must eat that. But there's no, there's no, they're not, their, their opinions aren't based on scientific study, they're based on emotional sort of research. Good fish, protein. Yeah. They are aligned with the Marine Conservation Society, who are scientists, but however, I think, I think they're more MS, about... You're talking about MSC? Yeah. MSC is, 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 is funded. It's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not independent organisations. Right. You yeah. have to be a member, you pay a membership fee. Part of MSC, so it's got it's got an, an agenda, I sure. Think, you know, because it's self-regulated almost. Okay, yeah. Um, I guess they're wanting to start conversations, but you know, maybe that's what Sasha, the chef who's now become their advocate. I think it's really good. But, yeah. I think it's really good. Everyone's talking about it. But I was talking to Callum um, from the Age, and I said to him, I saw to John Sushman, who's probably the most qualified person to talk about sustainability because mm. he actually works with the Australian government he's seen the data you know, they're independent they work with all the fishermen they, they research all their catches in the last 25 years they can tell you what's declining what hasn't what's healthy what's doing well mm. um, they have the data and, um, and they get government support based on that data and, and licenses are renewed or or disengaged, or you know, parts of the ocean are, are, are restricted because of data they get. So it's pretty, it's pretty significant information. And um, even John said, every two, three years, there's a freak thing in the ocean, and no one knows. Well, what's going, why has it happened? Yeah. It's climate change. You know, it's it's glacier melting. It's like so many things out there. Which well, I think too. What, and what the fishermen down at Corner Inlet were saying you know. was that they they said they go out every day and they can't predict. You know, there's, there's a big um, depletion in the seagrass population, and there's been a whole increase of sea urchins in that area. And so they said. 
you know, they're out there all the time. Some of them are fifth generation fishermen, and they said, we don't know what, you know, I feel like the ocean is this big unknown kind of It is, and, and, thing. and it's a really good point. Sea urchin are terrible for the ocean. They are pest. Mm. We should be eating more, we should be eating more sea urchin. Yeah. It should be readily available, should be cheap. That's a delicacy. And the abalone farmers have paid people in, in, in Tasmania to, you know, create an industry because they're destroying the abalone industry. Yeah. You know? um, but people don't know that. No, that's right. You know? uh, and I think, I think the group you were referring to earlier, Good Fish, Bad Fish. I oh, know, so it's just called um, the Good Fish Project. Good Fish Project, yeah. sorry. You know, there are things they should be talking about as well. Mm. You know? Yeah, which they, yeah, he is, yeah. Know, yeah. Just, really excited mm. um, and I, I, I honestly to answer your question how do I know which fish are endangered and which fish aren't um, based on my own research in terms of talking to people like John yeah. uh, talking to our fish wholesalers um, working in the industry for 30 years you, you, you see what fish comes across your, your menus you see what's available I mean five or six years ago there was very little tuna around we were all told to stay away from tuna skate you know um, orange Ruffy, some of the Dory species, they were all off our menus. I would never put them on, on my menu. Yeah. You know? When we had the first shipment of two fish, Patagonia two fish, which, which was, wasn't endangered, it was from a, a legal fishery of Third Island, the WA. Uh, we got protesters and kind of death threats. Yeah, that's a funny sorts. one, isn't it? That, that fish kind of fluctuates, isn't it? But well, they're thinking about the rest of the world, you see. Yeah, that's right. Or, or what, if you do, if you if you are using it, aren't you triggering its endangerment? Perhaps one day. Mm. Um, but I don't know. I wondered too, and I know you can't do this really with fish, but I read about the man. There's a farmer who will only um, slaughter a goat to order um, when a restaurant orders goat. He doesn't pre-package it, you know. But I know you can't do that with fish. But I was thinking maybe there, apparently there is a New Zealand uh, fish like boutique fish supplier that. Um, will supply to order and then so then he's only catching what is needed but I, that's kind of a probably an expensive way to go and a difficult way to go when, in terms of consumer demand and so on but yeah I don't know <laughs> I think yeah, the, the, the real the real criminals if you like are the other the supermarkets uh, the, the, these fish and chip shops you see across seaside towns like uh, Rye and you know they're all selling Imported fish and labelling it as exactly right, yeah. local fish, and yeah. um, you go to Coles and you see the male perch and things like that, which you don't need to buy. You know, no. they, can buy, they can buy local fish and fresh yeah. fish. And it's, it's 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 an endless debate. This one, unfortunately. Yeah. And I, I honestly feel, hand on my heart, all the fish in our menus is sustainable and available. And, and it look, it's a, such a lovely menu, and you just kept it really simple. You can have it grilled or battered, and it's whatever's fresh on the day. And I, I just, I love the simplicity of it. I had it with the um, the pea shoot salad. Yeah. Was that what it was? Yeah. Snowy, snowy, tendrils. They're, tendrils. They're very good right now. They're very sweet. And, yeah, delicious. And delicate and a nice salad leaf. And having yeah. the sea, the seaweed sprinkle on the chips is great. Um, yeah. yeah. Good for you. The natural salt. Yeah. It's, it's good. You, it's good food. Yeah. I'm glad you enjoyed it. The, the essence with seafood is simplicity. And yeah. It's, we're, we're approaching the silly season, so 
you know, or rather sort of have a, uh, how can I put it, uh, evolution rather than rev- revolution. Yeah. And, and start off simply. No, it's beautiful. And sitting there looking out at the ocean while you're eating seafood, I think is the best, one of the best things you can do. Well, Even if it doesn't half, come from there. Half the job's done, isn't it? For the, you have a totally. Good, you know, it's like icebergs. When I started at Iceberg in Sydney, I took over from Robert um, Marchetti, who's a, a very good chef, but his food was very, very complicated. Very, lots, lots of garnishes and very tricky food. And I, I couldn't get my head around it. And um, one day I was leaving work and Baz Luhrmann tapped me on the shoulder and says, Master, Master, Master. I said, sorry. He said, Master Chef, at last we've got someone who gets it. Simple food at icebergs. I can't believe it. It's like the missing link. I said, well, look out the water. He goes, exactly, exactly. That's why you're the master. Wow. And, he, you know, Baz Luhrmann is a pretty crazy, creative man. I was just going to say, he doesn't really reply that to his films. <laughs> so, you know, he's, he, anyone who appreciates the sort of gregarious and the outrageous, that's him. Yeah. So I was quite that's surprised hilarious. to hear, hear that from him. But I think, yeah, I think simplicity is... And a lot of mature people come to this restaurant, you know, and, and live in Sorrento. A lot of people retire here. And, you know, yeah. And, do you get to stay in Sorrento while you're doing this job? We've, 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 we've relocated, yeah. Beautiful. Because um, oh, my main focus is will be the Continental Hotel. Okay. That's a, that's a beautiful hotel emerging. Uh, we'll start work on that in um, February. And that will hopefully be open in a year's time with four restaurants, two ballrooms, and 150 new rooms. That sounds huge, but it does sound like a nice place to be doing it. <laughs> it is. Like no, it's a, it's a, a balm for the soul. You've been listening to Conversation with a Chef. I'm Jo Ritty, and thank you so much for joining me today. If you'd like to read the full transcript of the conversation, you can go to www.conversationwithachef.com or follow me on Instagram so you'll always be up to date with the latest conversation.